starting a new series today on envy and rivalry and violence. Um, so I'm a, just a lighthearted topic. <laughs> I'm a 17-year-old, uh, one of my first jobs in, a, in the serving line of a cafeteria-style restaurant in Detroit on Eight Mile Road called Sign of the Beef Eater became sign of the beef carter, carver. It's a great place. And my new high school girlfriend, uh, my first ever serious girlfriend, Nancy Roselle, had just broken up with her old boyfriend, also named Ken. Um, I do not like Ken Zernikowski, though I barely know him. I, I don't even think I've met him. Um, for a, a few weeks after the breakup, he comes through the line at Sign of the Beef Eater, and I'm serving him, and he says, Hi, Ken, I'm on my way to see Roselle. And I want to stab him with a carving knife. <laughs> I kid you not. I, I married Nancy Roselle about once a year after we got married, and we were married for 40 years. I'd make some snarky comment cloaked in the costume of lighthearted jest about that squirrely old boyfriend of yours, Ken Zwernikowski. At one point, one of my kids said, give it up, Dad. <laughs> What's with you and Ken Zwernikowski? Um, there's, a, there's a great German word. The German language is great. It's got these long words for like complex things. Have you heard the word schadenfreude? Schadenfreude is the pleasure in the misfortune of others. Have you ever felt a little secret schadenfreude when your coworker, the one who consistently gets more credit than you get from the boss, blows a project? It's, a, it's an embarrassing thing about us, isn't it? This capacity. It's kind of like our dirty little secret, how much envy is part of our inner world. You know, if you're if your month-old newborn sleeps through the night, do not tell your friends who are tearing their hair out with their six-month-old who is still getting up every two hours at best. The envy provoked will not be good for them, it won't be good for you, it won't be good for anyone. As it says in the Gospel of Matthew, it was because of envy that Jesus was crucified. So, in our reading today, I noticed, oh my goodness, did Josie do a great job with that, with that reading? I mean, just the poise. Um, Daryl, who led us in the Ebenezer song, is Josie's proud father, and uh, she, she nailed that reading. That was pretty impressive. It was a long one, too. But in our reading today, which is about um, the two paths, the way of the spirit contrasted with the way of the, uh, the sometimes the flesh it's called or that that um, our humanity when we're alienated from God would be another understanding of the flesh in the in the works of the flesh we have a string of connected words um, enmities strife jealousy anger quarrels dissensions factions and envy that this is immediately preceded this section by um, the writer saying the whole law is summed up in a single command love your neighbor as yourself if however you bite and devour one another take care that you are not consumed by one another it's a very vivid image that he's using there you know as we observe the intense 
uh, polarization of our culture. And it seems to be like a global phenomenon today in our politics. Isn't there something kind of prescient and chilling about this warning from Galatians? So the Bible assigns envy and rivalry and the violence that they engender a central role in the human condition. And it situates the Jesus path as an alternative to the way of life that is fueled by envy, rivalry, which ultimately leads to violence. So what, let's say we explore this together for, uh, for the next maybe four or five Sundays. Today we're going to consider the triangular nature of desire as the cause of envy, rivalry, and ultimately of violence. How about that? Put that in your pipe and smoke it. So we're, we're going to be right in our origin story in Genesis chapter 3. I'm using the Robert Alter translation. He's an awesome uh, Hebrew scholar. And he, he gets super close to the Hebrew in his uh, translations. And this one is particularly good. So I'm going to read, I don't know, the uh, first paragraph. Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the beasts of the field. We're in the, we're in the garden story, the original garden, after the seven days of creation in Genesis 1. We flip, we have a whole different order of creation in Genesis 2, and we're right in the middle of this lovely garden that God has situated the, his humans. Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Though God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden, and the woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the garden's tree we may eat, but the fruit of the tree in the midst of the garden of God, uh, he has said, you shall not eat from it, and you shall not touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, he was talking about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, remember, and the serpent said to the woman, you shall not be doomed to die, for God knows that on the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open. You will become as gods, knowing good and evil. And the woman saw that the tree was good for eating, and it was lust to the eyes, underline lust, and the tree was lovely to look at, underline lovely, and she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave to her man, I like that, she gave it to her man, and he ate, and the eyes of the two were open, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves, and made themselves loincloths. So, you know, we often, as we're reading this text and trying to understand its meaning, we're often focusing on the rule of temptation and disobedience as like the trip line of what in classical doctrine we call the fall, the, the, the great fall of humanity. But, but the text, I think, is inviting us to look deeper than this, and it's how desire works for human beings. How does desire work for humans? This is a key part. And the woman saw that the tree was good for eating and that it was lust to the eyes and the tree was lovely to look at. And she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave to her man and he ate. The, the Hebrew translated um, lust, these are from the footnotes of Robert Alter, is um, ta'awag and it means that which is intensely desired. And the Hebrew translated lovely Nemad means literally that which is desired. So this is human desire's first appearance in the, in the entire Bible. This piece of writing pretty obviously is what we call, would call mythic. Um, myths have uh, 
fantastic creatures like talking snakes. This is just typical of the genre. Uh, myths were the, the earliest human stories and the ancient peoples uh, knew not to take them literally. So it's not like the ancients took those myths literally, but they, um, because they were more powerful than that, and they knew that to take them literally would rob them of its power. So they, they allowed the myth to speak to them the truth that they were speaking. And usually the myths were about like, how did we come about? Where, you know, why are things the way they are? The Bible, especially the book of Genesis, includes lots of mythic stories, uh, but they're often myth-busting myths. In the big battle of, of whether is it possible to have myths in the Bible or not, we miss the more important fact, which is the mythic stories in the Bible uh, are actually myth-busting myths. So they're often designed to unmask some of the self-serving myths that we tell ourselves that were circulating at the time. And this one's especially uh, powerful for modern people because this story unmasks the modern myth uh, that's very precious to us as uh, Americans, North Americans, especially under the influence of European culture, the myth of the independent, autonomous self that is so precious to our understanding of ourselves. We like to think that each of us is a self-contained unit generating its own desires, right? Like our desires, they just spring from the deep within us, from the unique, original thing that we are, the never been before that we are. We want because we want because we want. But this story has a, has a very different take on what human desire actually is like and how it functions. Um, often, the story is telling us, we want what we want because we are imitating the desire of someone else. That's a, that's a deep thought. Um, the garden dwellers didn't generate their own desire for the forbidden fruit. They were around it for a long time. They had, there were no signs that they wanted it. They didn't want it even because it was forbidden. They borrowed their desire. And it was an intense desire that felt to them like it originated in them. But they borrowed it from someone else. The woman from the snake, the man from the woman. In, in, the, in the dialogue that this thing is part of, the snake opens, remember, with a little, little bit of a deceit. He's saying that God had forbidden them to eat from all the trees in the garden. But the woman catches, catches this deceit right off. She interrupts him. And I love the way that this uh, translation shows the interruption. Right away, and she says, oh no, he told us we may eat from any uh, fruit, a tree in the garden just to stay away from the tree at the center of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The woman wasn't fooled by the talking snake. Instead, what happened was she absorbed the snake's desire. This desire didn't originate with her. She had no sign of it until the talking snake revealed its desire. Don't you realize that this tree can make you like God? His desire became her desire. This is actually a deep insight into the nature of human desire. That it's triangular. It's not just like me 
desiring an object, A desiring B, but there's a third in the triangle of desire. There's another desiring person who's like a model for my desire. And I want the object often because I'm imitating the desire of the model, of the mediator. It's triangular. We desire according to the desires of others. And René Girard, who is the scholar who unpacks this in scapegoat theory, uh, says it's because we have this very highly advanced capacity for imitation. We don't just imitate behaviors. We don't just imitate each other's clothing choices called fashion, but we actually imitate the desire of other people. So Rene Girard, the, the scholar who developed this, called it uh, mimetic theory. Mimetic meaning imitative, like a mime. He calls this mimetic desire. The nature of human desire is to be imitative. So little examples, I, you know, I had no interest in coffee until I had a Teamsters Union job right out of high school that included coffee breaks in the morning and in the afternoon and my coworkers who were older than me and kind of cool dudes wanted coffee. They were so eager for their coffee. They drank coffee on their coffee breaks. So I wanted it too, even though I didn't like the taste of coffee. I had to put milk in it. I had used to eat just the amount of sugar I would put in my coffee in order to drink coffee like those guys. It wasn't my desire, I got their desire for coffee. I was imitating their desire. Girard says we unconsciously imitate the desire of another person called a model or a mediator. And this is usually not just any old person, but it's often a significant person in our lives. We unconsciously imitate the desire. We're not aware of this process. It feels like ours, but actually we're imitating the desire of another. And you could see how this dynamic um, mimetic desire would fuel rivalry, right? I mean, we, if we want what we want because someone else wants it, that immediately sets us up to be rivals with a lot of people. And it's like a positive feedback loop, right? They notice us wanting the thing and they want it even more. <laughs> and we notice them wanting it even more and we want it even more. And it can kind of spiral out of control. Rivalry rooted in this mimetic desire breeds violence. It's the heart of violence. And we'll see this as it unfolds in, uh, in Genesis. We want our rival to fail in his quest for what we also want. And then our rival starts imitating that same desire in us. And they want us to see us fail in our quest. And it, and it spirals. And, and before long, it's not actually about the desired object anymore. It's just about like imitating the rival. China and Japan are like, like you know, have this in, incredible international tension over a few useless islands that are like nothing but rock in the China Sea. It's not about the islands, it's about the, the rivalry and the imitation. Rivalrous desire spreads in the early chapters of Genesis like a contagion. It's like a, it's like a virus, it just spreads. 
the first death in the Bible is a murder fueled by rivalry, by envy. Uh, mimetic desire leads to envy, leads to rivalry, leads to violence. And it's, it's, it's just presented like a contagion. You know, the woman seeing the snake's interest in the forbidden fruit wants it. He obviously wants to be like God. Suddenly she wants that fruit too. Her man, seeing her want it, wants it too. It's a contagion. It's spreading like a cold virus. And that's how violence spreads throughout the human community, fueled by rivalrous desire. And in the, in the book of Genesis, violence, not disease, is the contagion most feared by early humanity. And, you know, as modern people, we think, oh, we have, thank God, we have antibiotics, and we have, you know, we have uh, um, good sanitary systems, and we don't have, like, plagues running through all the time. The plague that terrorized early human communities more than any biological agent was the contagious nature of violence fueled by rivalrous desire. Um, by the sixth chapter of Genesis we read and the earth was filled with violence and it was the violence of the early humans obviously the first violent act right physical violence was the murder Cain of Abel fueled by envy and it just spreads from there later in in Israel's story um, Israel was given the Ten Commands known by the, uh, Jews as the Ten Words. Um, so important were they and so, um, and since pithy were these directives, these commands. And of the Ten Commands, the Tenth is the, by far the most mysterious um, because it seems to us to be the most impossible command to, to obey. It's the command about coveting, right? which is all about desire. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. By the way, if we think that slavery is not supported by a you know, plain reading of scripture, all we need to do is consider the 10th commandment um, in which it's assumed that human beings will own other human beings. Um, today, of course, we would say this particular plain reading of the Bible uh, does not reveal God's will. This book uh, can only be read as part of an ongoing conversation with God. It's a spiritual book for a spiritual connection with a living God. That's how the Bible is to be used. So the deep wisdom of the Ten Commandments, though, is precisely in the way it cuts through all the layers of external behavior and addresses us at the, at the heart level, which is the level of desire. Don't desire your neighbor's house or anything that is your neighbor's. But what the Tenth Commandment is doing is addressing violence at its root. To end rivalry and violence, we must face desire, human desire, how it works for us human beings. Maybe that's why we have this story about desire and how we can unconsciously imitate uh, the desire of others. Uh, maybe it helps us to know that our desire, like our fashion sense, 
is mimetic. We imitate each other at the level of desire. It doesn't make us feel very good about ourselves. It's not something I want to cop to. It's some of the things I really desire in life I got from a model, you know, or a, or a mediator. I like to think of, well, sure, that, that, applies, to, that applies to fashion. I'm, I'm willing to acknowledge that I really did like bell-bottoms in 1971. And I just thought, these are just the, the, the coolest, these are the coolest pants. And it's just nice not to have to worry about how the bottom part of your leg, you know, it all fits together with your ankle and everything. I just like it. What a great idea. It just flares out at the bottom. I love, I just, I, I, love, I thought certainly if I had seen bell-bottoms, I would have said, that's a great idea. I'm going to start wearing bell-bottoms, you know. But now, I'm not into bell-bottoms in the same way. They're still as functional and cool as they ever were, but, you know, I'm willing to acknowledge that level of imitative desire, but it's a lot more humbling for me to, to acknowledge that actually I might be imitating the desire of models or mediators at a much deeper level because it feels like I'm not as autonomous. I'm not like my own original work of art that I was hoping I was that my, you know, cultural myths have been telling me. Um, so, how, how is it possible <laughs> to obey the Tenth Commandment, you know? Doesn't it seem ridiculous to you for God to say, don't desire something? Don't you just want to say, well, I, I, I can control what I do, but I can't control what I desire. I mean, I just, I desire what I desire. Maybe control is too strong a word. Maybe the, the word is influence. How might we influence what we desire? Well, by understanding how desire works would help. That it is mimetic. Um, knowing this, Jesus actually models another use for mimetic desire. So this, this is something we're going to do because we're human. But Jesus models, he like does a, a jujitsu move on desire. He models a different way of using this human mimetic desire thing. Jesus presents himself to us as a child of God. That's what it means to say he's the son of God. He's the child of God who is near and dear to God. I mean, he, he's calling God Abba Father, the, the, the you know, tender little kid uh, parental term for God. He's saying, I, I, I'm in a relationship with God like a child with its mother is just near and dear. And then he's saying, come to me. Everybody, you can come to me. And if you get close to me, I will help you get close to God in the way that I am close to God. And then he talks about this God in a way that we would actually want to be close to him. This is a God of love. This is a God of mercy. This is a God of forgiveness. It's actually safe to get close to this God that Jesus knows. And then as we get close to God, we can just let our human mimetic desire run wild. <laughs> you know, we do it unconsciously with people. We could also it can also work with God, though. That if we come to Jesus and he helps us get close to the God he knows, we will find ourselves almost naturally desiring what God desires. 
And that will be an entirely different experience of desire than this fallen human desire. Jesus is inviting human beings into the life of love that he knows within the Godhead, within the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's like, it's like a swimming pool of love. And he's saying, jump in, the water is fine. Here there is imitation and there's desire. You can be fully human without envy though, without rivalry and without violence. This is what Jesus is offering. This is why when Paul talks about the new creation, he talks about it as being in Christ. It's just like there's two different ways of being. We can be in this world and we can use our imitative desire for rivalry and, and envy. You know, the heart of our free market economy, right? We've channeled this for great good in the Western world and yet it, it spreads violence like nobody's business. There's another way of doing it and it's the way of Jesus. Okay, that's our start. <laughs> there will be more in coming weeks to unpack this, but um, we're going to take a little time of silent reflection now, which you do most every Sunday, and I have a suggestion for the time. You can use it any way you want. It's, a, it's the land of the free and the home of the brave, but, um, and that's it. That you simply, like, mobilize a simple intention that you carry throughout the next week, and, you know, sometimes it takes a little, you know, 30 seconds or so to mobilize an intention, just sit with it. And that's what you do at the time. The intention, intention would be not to change your desires, not to try to change your desires over the next week, but simply to notice them. Just to notice how is desire working in me? What is it that I desire? What, what is it that I want? And then just to maybe reflect, be open to becoming aware I wonder where that desire came from. <laughs> and maybe you could even see some of this mimetic dynamic that you didn't see before. So let's just take a, a little time of quiet and if you'd like to set that intention in your heart and see what happens in the week to come after we do that. into a prayer for us all. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would, over the coming week, uh, just shine the light of the Holy Spirit on our hearts and help us to notice uh, how desire works in our hearts. Uh, not with our effort to change it or get it, you know, get it all working great and improve ourselves and all that uh, fruitless boohonky, but um, if you could just shine your light on our hearts and help us to notice how desire works. We believe that would um, open up a new freedom for us in you. Amen.